You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. This morning, verses 3 through 8 of Philippians chapter 2, together, verses 3 through 8. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let's go to the Lord before we begin this morning, shall we? Our Father, we stand this morning on the edge of mystery, looking into a cloud, as it were. Some things are revealed to us, other things must remain a mystery to us. And so with such a wonderful passage in front of us this morning, as we talk about the condescension of your Son, We can only ask that your spirit would be our teacher this morning to guide us into truth, to open our eyes and our hearts, help us to remain subject and submissive to the mystery, to understand what we can and to leave those things that we can't into your hands till eternity. We look to you this morning and we know that without you being here to guide us and to teach us that everything that we do and all the time that we might spend is just merely man's ramblings, but we have the confidence that in your word is revealed truth and we pray today that we would see that truth and understand it and love it and obey it, that we might be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We ask this this morning in His name. Amen. Every once in a while there comes in the process of preaching through an entire book of the Bible, come across a passage that simply defies the English language to explain. And that is the way Philippians chapter 7 is for me this last week. Most of my time this last week, I I understand after a fashion what is being said and, and what it means and what the implications of it are. But the dilemma, the hard part, is to put that into language. And so as I'm, I'm writing out everything that I'm thinking this last week, I find myself walking a very fine line. I, I don't want to fall off into error on one side or the other. I don't want to try and remove the mystery of what is before us in this text. Because, friends, Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, contains three words that just plunge our minds into the mystery of the Godhead, into the mysterious nature of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And those three words at the beginning of verse 7, He emptied Himself, just plunge us into the unknown. They really do. I mean, God has revealed to us and He has spoken to us in words. So anything that might be known of God by special revelation, is in word form. Either the living Word, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, or the written Word of God. That's how God has spoken to us. And that's how God makes Himself known to us. And so if we're going to understand the depths of God's revelation, it's going to have to be by studying the words and by somehow communicating the words. But what do you do when you come across a passage of Scripture or something in Scripture that utterly defies being explained? How do you describe the indescribable? How do you explain the unexplainable? How do you take that which is beyond comprehension and make it understandable? You can't do that. So part of me just wants to say, let's just close in prayer 
and we'll all go home. But the other part of me says, you've got to take a stab at this. There, there's something in all of us, is there not, that does not like mystery. There's something in us that doesn't like mystery. We cannot accept just leaving it a mystery that man is responsible and that God is sovereign. We have to try and remove one or the other. We cannot just leave it as a mystery that God is three persons in one God. We want to try and understand that. We can't just accept that faith is both a divine gift and a human responsibility, that repentance is something that God grants and that man is responsible to do. We want to remove all the mystery. We want to have all these nice, tight little answers, put all of our theology down in a nice little box and tie the bow on top and have it all clean and crisp and and easy to grasp. There's something in us that wants to do that. But that's just not always possible. Sometimes you just have to say, look, this is revealed to us, and I know this this is true. I don't understand how it's true, but it is, because it's revealed in Scripture. Although we can't understand this, we have to accept it because it's revealed to us. And the reality, you know, when you are dealing with something that's mysterious, the minute you begin to remove the mystery from it, you start into heresy. The minute you begin to remove the mystery, you start into heresy. And then you're going to be end up with a God who you can wrap your brain around and you can explain Him, and you can understand Him, and you know exactly how He works, and then guess what? After a couple minutes of meditation, you're going to say, you know what, I don't want that God. That's a pretty small God if I can stretch my brain around Him. And so then you want a bigger God. And there are times when we just have to accept the mystery. What do you think is the biggest miracle ever performed? Think an Old Testament? Creation, maybe? Parting of the Red Sea? Providing quail, providing manna for 40 years, shoes not wearing out, Elijah raising a dead person. What's the biggest? Maybe you're thinking New Testament. Feeding the 10,000 or 5,000 twice. Um, resurrection of Christ. You know what the biggest mystery, the biggest miracle to ever take place was? God became a man. There's no miracle that even competes with that. That's the mystery. That's the mystery of godliness. By common confession, Paul says, 1 Timothy chapter 3, that He was revealed in the flesh, seen by angels, beheld by us, and taken up into glory. It's the mystery of godliness. That He who was God became a man. And that's where, we, that's what, that's where we're at in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7. God becoming a man. We started verse 6 with Jesus existing in the form of God, not regarding His equality with God something to be grasped, And so at the beginning of verse 6, we start out as high as we can be with Him existing in the form of God because He was God. Then the the end of verse 6 takes us down one step, that mental humbling, that humility of mind where He begins this stepping down. He stepped down in that He did not regard His equality with God as something to be held on to at all costs. Then He stepped down further when He took upon Himself the form, He emptied Himself, and then further when it says He took upon Himself the form of a slave and came in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, He humbled Himself even further by coming obedient to the point of death. And not just death, but what kind of death? Even death on a cross. So we get to the end of verse 8 and we are as low as we can go. Hanging on a cross on earth. And then by the end time we get to the end of verse 11, we're back up as exalted as we can be. God has given Him the name which is above every name. And each one of these phrases is kind of like standing on the shore of the ocean and the waves roll in one after another. And every phrase that Paul gives us is one of these great theological waves that crashes down at our feet. And I feel that even though we're going slow, painfully slow for some of you, even though we're going slow, all we have time to do 
is to stand on the shore and allow the waves to just wet our feet. And yet we understand that there is so much more to the waves that we can't even possibly begin to understand the ocean. So we have to be content to just let the waves wash over our feet as they come in one phrase after another and say, wow, what mystery. I know this is part of the ocean. I can't explain the ocean. I can't see everything in the ocean. But I know that all I'm getting is a glimpse of it. And then in Philippians chapter 2, what do we get? We get a glimpse. And what do we get? We get one ray of the sun. We get one bucket of the ocean. That's all that we're made privy to in each one of these sentences that he gives. That's why we're taking it a little bit slow because we just need to pause for a second and open up our minds and begin to meditate on what this incredible stuff means. Paul says he emptied himself. And before we dive into what that means, I want to remind you of just what we're dealing with in context, okay? Because you have to keep all of this stuff in your mind. Because what I want to do is I want to avoid dropping off into some error, either silly or heretical, some error that is going to take us down a wrong path. What does Paul mean when he says that he emptied himself? Remember the context. Remember three things about the context. First, all of this that he's telling us about Christ is designed for the purpose of showing to us the greatest example of selfless living. Do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit. Nothing out of vain conceit. Nothing out of self-serving motives. But regard other people as more important than yourselves. Look to the interests of other people. Then he gives to us the illustration of what that is. You want an illustration of what selfless, sacrificial, living for others means? The Lord Jesus Christ. He existed in the form of God. And so this is the illustration. So remember the context. The context is selfless, sacrificial, others-centered living. Not living for myself, but living for other believers. That's the context. Second, remember the the phrase, the form of God. And don't think in your mind something that Paul doesn't mean by form. He doesn't mean a shadow. He doesn't mean a sketch. He doesn't mean a, a, a general outline. He means the outward visibility or the outward manifestation of what is genuinely true. Jesus Christ existed in the form of God because He was God. Since He was God, what you would have seen of Him was the outward manifestation of all that that nature meant. So He existed in the outward manifestation in the form of God being God Himself. That's what the word means. That's what the context means. And since He existed in the form of God, He was then equal with God. That's the third thing. He was equal with God. Equal with God in power, equal with God in authority, equal with God in character, in nature, in substance, in every way. So that anything that can be affirmed of God can be affirmed of Jesus Christ. He was equal with God, but he did not regard his equality with God as something to be held on to, to be grasped, to be clung to, as a spoil or an advantage to be used for himself. That's verse 6. Now we come to, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Does Paul mean that he ceased being equal with God? Does Paul mean that for a period of time, 33 years on earth, that Jesus Christ was no longer God, that He gave up and divested Himself of all of His deity so that He was a mere man? Or maybe not just a mere man, but as somebody who had once been God, He was sort of a better man. Or does Paul mean that He divested Himself of His deity So that when he came to earth, he was no longer man. And that even today, he is not God and equal with God or in the form of God. What does Paul mean by that? Well, I want you to notice, just we're just going to look at basically three sort of elements of that phrase. But, he emptied and himself. Now there's something in your Bible that's in every translation probably that's in your laps. And it is the word at the beginning of that phrase. 
but. They say, Jim, is a but really that important? It certainly is in this context. It's a very strong, adversative word in the Greek. It's right at the beginning, and it's as if you could underline it, you could bold it, you could italicize it, you could do whatever you want to sort of draw attention to it. That's the sense in which Paul is using it. But, on the contrary, and what he is contrasting, and you're going to see why it's important in a moment, what he's contrasting is not he had the form of God, but he became something else. What he is contrasting is he had equality with God and he did not think it was something to be grasped on the contrary of grasping that equality with God or wanting to hold on to that equality with God, he emptied himself. So that's the contrast. Second is the word himself. Now in the Greek, and this is different than English, if I sentence used mixed up all, you would have a hard time if I spoke like that continually of understanding where in the world is this guy going, where did he come from, and what is he doing. But in the Greek, if you want to emphasize something, word order doesn't mean anything. It's all word endings and prefixes and all this stuff. Word order doesn't mean anything. So in Greek, if you want to emphasize something, you take a word that would normally probably occur later on in the sentence, and you sort of put it at the beginning so that it stands out. And it's at the front of something else that you want to say so that it's emphasized. But himself, Paul says, he emptied. And he emphasizes that word because the Apostle Paul is calling to our attention something about this act, and it is this that it is voluntary. It was a voluntary emptying. There was no coercion that forced Christ into emptying Himself. There was no coercion that made Him condescend. If in your mind you think back to eternity past and what you have in view is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all playing rock, paper, scissors to determine which one of them goes to earth to redeem humanity, you've got a wrong image in your head. If you think that Christ came just because He drew the shortest straw, or that He was forced into it, or that the Father made Him and the Holy Spirit guilted Him into it, that's wrong. That's not the way it is at all. And I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be sort of flippant about it. I want you to see what Paul is trying to emphasize. He is saying Himself He emptied. It was His action. He did it Himself. You say, but Jesus came to the earth to do the Father's will. He absolutely did. But Jesus said, the Father loves me because I lay down my life for the sheep and I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it up. No coercion. No coercion. He wasn't forced into this. He wasn't guilted into it. He didn't leave heaven grabbing onto His throne, gritting His teeth and saying, if I have to go die for those rotten sinners, I will. It wasn't it at all. Do you see the obvious application of that very principle itself, friends? We are to live selflessly for the sake of of others. Now I ask you, is that only when we're forced to do it? Or should we voluntarily do that? Should we look for opportunities to do that? Should it be something that we ourselves do? We lay down ourselves for other people. Not just when we're forced to. Oh, I guess if i got to consider his interest ahead of my own, I will. Gritting our teeth. That's not the attitude that Paul is after at all. What he wants us to do is to consider other people as more important than ourselves to do so willingly, to do so voluntarily, to do so of our own volition. Because Himself, He emptied. It doesn't say that the Father emptied Him or the Spirit emptied Him or something else emptied Him. No coercion whatsoever. A willingness to come. And He emptied Himself and He poured Himself out. He laid Himself out for the sake of others. Now the phrase, He emptied. He emptied. Kanao. Kanao is the Greek word. Now, for those of you who like all the theological jargon, you can impress your buddies at work tomorrow. 
That word is why they refer to this passage as the kenosis passage or the kenotic passage. Or they refer to the incarnation of Christ as the kenosis of Jesus. The word kenao means to empty or to make void something. Now, there are all kinds of ways that theologians have tried to explain this. This is really important to understand because of what we covered a few weeks ago. If you get this wrong, you have Jesus wrong. Okay? If you get what is, what Paul is saying, if you, if you misunderstand this and get this wrong, you're gonna, one of two things is gonna happen. You're either gonna end up with a Jesus who is God walking this earth, or you're gonna end up with a Jesus who is nothing more than a good man walking this earth. He is either God in human flesh, or he's something less than God. But he can't be both. So it's important that we understand it so that we don't end up with a Jesus that the Mormons can affirm, or the Jehovah's Witnesses can affirm, or the Christian scientists, or the Muslims, or anybody else can affirm. We have to have the right Jesus. So what does Paul mean when he says that he emptied, he kanao himself? What does that refer to? Does it mean that he emptied himself of his equality, emptied himself of the form of God, emptied himself of all of his divinity? Some of the ways that people try and explain this get into the silly and almost downright blasphemous. For instance, there's one theory that says, because later on in verse 7 it says he took upon himself the form of a slave, came in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. So there's one group of people who would say, when it says that he emptied himself, what Paul is saying is that he got rid of the form of God, laid aside his equality with God, all of his divine attributes, and he came here and he became a bondservant, or he took upon him the form of a slave, and by slave, what Paul means is he became a slave to demons and to Satan. That's one group. Now friends, that should if you're a Christian here this morning, that should make you just bristle inside. It's almost difficult to even say those words, is it not? And any clear-thinking Christian who even reads through the Gospels in a cursory manner can see that he was in no way subject or a slave to demons. What he said, demons did. He cast them out. He rebuked them. He reproved them. He controlled them. He did all of that. He banished demonic activity from the land of Palestine during his earthly ministry. When the king came and he broke into this world and he made the offer of the kingdom, he showed that he had the ability to bind the strong man and to plunder his house. So he wasn't controlled by demons. He wasn't a slave to Satan or a slave to demons at all. That's just silly. It's actually blasphemous. I would call it blasphemous. But historically, there are two major ways of understanding the kenosis. We're going to lay aside the silly, we're going to lay aside the blasphemous, and we're going to deal with the two that Christians mostly have fallen into one of these two camps. Now, here's what I'm going to do as a favor for you. I'm going to give you the erroneous one first, the wrong one, so that we can evaluate it. I'll tell you what the problems with it are, and then I'll give you the truth before you leave here, so that the last thing on your mind is what is true. And I don't want you leaving here confused, so I'll give you the error first, then I'll wash your mind clean, hopefully, and give you the truth of it. So here's the erroneous one. They say that in the kenosis, or in the emptying, that Jesus Christ laid aside His divinity, His deity. That He laid aside His divinity, His deity, also His equality with God, the form of the God, everything that made Him God. And He took upon Himself the form of a slave. So the essence of this view is that He exchanged the form of God and took the form of a slave so that he ceased to be God and he became instead a man. You get that? Okay, kind of comes into two different ways. People will cash this out. They'll say, laid aside the form of God. And some people will say, he emptied himself of all of his relative attributes and he maintained all or retained all of his essential attributes. And by that they mean he laid aside his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence and everything infinite. Laid aside all of that But he kept all of the good stuff. Holiness, righteousness, truth, 
justice, mercy, compassion, love, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. All of those attributes of God He kept. He laid aside all of the omni-attributes, the omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, everything that was infinite about Him. Now, there are a bunch of problems with that. I'm just going to give you four of them real quick. One of them, first, the word kenosis is used figuratively, not literally. We're going to get to that in a second. I know this sounds like great stuff, doesn't it? Used figuratively and not literally. Second, grammatically, the word kanao cannot refer to the form of God. So he's not saying that he laid aside all of his form of God. Can't make that jump. That's why the word but at the beginning of that phrase is so important. It sort of severs it with what came at the beginning of verse 6. And it contrasts it with the grasping. It's not the grasping, it's the letting go. Third, did not Jesus Christ demonstrate those attributes while He was on earth? Didn't He demonstrate those? Did He demonstrate His omnipotence? Calming the sea, healing the sick, raising the dead, raised Himself from the dead, multiplied bread and fish, cast out demons. There was nothing that He wanted to do that He could not do because He wasn't powerful. He demonstrated His omnipotence. Furthermore, He demonstrated His omnipresence. His ability to be everywhere. He told the disciples where two or more are gathered, and this is the context of church and church discipline, where two or more are gathered, I am there in the midst of them. That's omnipresence. And He promised that, even while He was here on earth. And third, did He not demonstrate omniscience? The ability to know everything? John chapter 1, Nathaniel walks up. Hi, nice to meet you. Oh, I saw you under the tree before you ever came over here. He knew him before he ever met him, before he ever saw him. He knew Nathaniel. John chapter 3, it says that he didn't need anybody to testify to him about man because he knew what was in the heart of man. John chapter 4, the woman at the well. Jesus knew things that only an omniscient being could know. He knew that she, how many husbands she had, how she was living in immorality, what her life was, her moral behavior and conduct had been. And she went into the town and she said, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And what had Jesus told her? You're immoral. But that was all she'd ever done. And he knew it. He was omniscient. He demonstrated all of those qualities, all of those characteristics. But the fourth problem, and this is the most serious one, is a theological problem, and is this, friends. How can God cease to be God? How can that happen? Omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence, and all of the infinite characteristics of God, those are not things that God can or cannot do without. Sure, if I have omnipotence, it would be nice characteristic, but I can give that up and still be God. You can't. If you forfeit any one of those as God, He ceases to be God. And God cannot cease to be God. God is God. He must always be God. He will always be God. And He cannot ever cease being God. So He can't give up any of those attributes, none of His attributes. If the second person of the Holy Trinity ceased to be God and came to earth and laid aside those attributes, then you no longer have a trinity. You have what? A duality or a duo of some sort, but you don't have a tri-unity. You don't have three persons, all the one God. And that means that the eternal, essential nature and character of God suffers a defect. It suffers a loss. It becomes less than what it was before, and God cannot do that. He cannot suffer any defect. He cannot suffer any loss in any of His nature, any of His character, any of His attributes. So serious theological problems with that. So did Jesus Christ cease to be God and come to earth? Now the answer to that, in case you're still wondering, is no. Everybody shake your hand. I'll ask, I'll ask the question one more time. Did He cease to be God and come to earth? The answer is no. He did not lay aside the form of God. He did not lay aside His equality with God. 
So what then does it mean when Paul says that he emptied himself? It is not that he exchanged the form of God for the form of a slave. Friends, he emptied himself, and this is the biblical view, he emptied himself by taking, not by losing something, but by taking something. He didn't empty himself by losing anything. He emptied himself by taking something that he did not have before. And that is the form of a slave. Do you notice the rest of verse 7? He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. That's how the emptying took place. Not that he ceased being God, but that as God, he took something he didn't have before. That is the form of a slave. That is the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he became a man, and in becoming a man, he emptied himself. Now that word kanao, there's two ways you can use it, and I alluded to this earlier. You can use it literally, or you can use it figuratively in the Greek. If you use the word literally, kanao, literally, then it means to make empty. As if you were to empty out a cup or take something out of a box, remove something from it. You could make something empty in that sense, literally. If it's used metaphorically or figuratively, much like you would say in an early Christian hymn, created of a bunch of stanzas, sort of as a confessional statement, if used it poetically, figuratively, metaphorically in that sense, then it doesn't mean to remove something or take something out and suffer a loss. It means to make something of no effect or to make it void. Five times the word is used in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 4, verse 14, uses it to refer to the faith that might be made void if salvation is if people get saved through the law, then faith is made void. It's made useless. He uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to speak of his preaching in the cross. If it's with persuasive words, then the cross is made of no effect. It's made useless. He uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9 to speak of his boasting being made empty. He uses it figuratively and metaphorically all four times that he uses it. The fifth time is right here in Philippians chapter 2 and Paul uses it figuratively again. He doesn't mean that Christ got rid of his equality with God or got rid of his form of God. Paul is, in, is saying, by taking the form of a slave, that form of God and the equality with God was made of no advantage, of no effect. He literally emptied himself in the sense that that which was his meant nothing to him. And he did not use it. He made it, no, he made it of no effect. Not that he got rid of it but that he did not use it for his own advantage. But instead, he became a man. And the emptying is not exchanging the form of God for the form of a slave. The emptying is displaying the form of God in the form of a slave. Now, that's the money sentence of the whole sermon. So if you're going to write down anything, write that down. The emptying was not the exchanging of the form of God for the form of a slave. The emptying was displaying the form of God in the form of a slave. So that when you looked at Jesus, what you saw is not somebody who once was God, now was a mere man. What you saw in Jesus was He who was God, manifesting deity in the form of a slave. So was He the form of God or the form of a man? Both. He was the form of God in the form of a man. And that is the emptying. He made His equality with God of no effect. He basically made it void. That is, by taking humanity, by taking upon Himself humanity, He limited 
the independent use and the exercise of those attributes. Now, Jesus knew all things, but you say, wait, did he not know the day or the hour of his return? He didn't know that, did he? You're right, he didn't know that. And we'll deal with that next week. Why he didn't know that? Because we're going to look at the humanity of Jesus. Yeah, see, I, always a teaser. There's going to be some reason you keep coming back. We're going to, we're going to look at that next week. He didn't know that. But does that mean that he wasn't omniscient? No, he was omniscient. He was omniscient. Completely omniscient. And he knew all of that. He was the form of God displayed in the form of a servant. That's why Jesus could say, Philip, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Show us the Father. Philip, there's nothing more for you to see. Everything that is God I have displayed to you in the form of a servant. So that when you looked at Jesus, you saw God and you saw man. You saw God and you saw man. So that he exchanged, he didn't exchange the form of God for the form of a man. He manifested the form of God in the form of a man. Now if he didn't lay aside his deity and if he didn't get rid of the form of God, then what did the incarnation cost him? Am I, am I suggesting that it didn't cost him anything? What do you think it cost him? Think about what the incarnation of Christ meant for him. And that's the whole point of Philippians 2, by the way. It's not what that death meant for us. It's what that death meant for him. What did it cost him? It cost him a lot. First of all, he laid aside, or it cost him, his favorable status to the divine law. Do you realize that before Jesus Christ came to earth, he wasn't under the law? Did he have to attend the feast? Did he have to take, keep the Sabbath? Did he have to abide by dietary laws? No. Didn't have to be circumcised the eighth day, present in the temple, attend any of the... But when he came here, born of a virgin, under the law, as a Jew, all of the law had its full bearing upon him. And he kept it in thought, word, and deed flawlessly. But in heaven, he didn't have any relationship to that whatsoever. And beyond that, in heaven, he bore no guilt for sin whatsoever, did he? But when he came to earth, what did he do? He bore the weight of sin. In heaven, he wasn't touched by sin. He wasn't considered guilty for sin. And yet when He came to earth, He was made to bear the sins of many. He was made to bear our iniquity and to bear our sins in His own body on the tree. So that He who in heaven existed without any burden of guilt whatsoever came to earth and He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So all of a sudden, He becomes a sin bearer. That's emptying, is it not? Consider this. When he was in heaven, he wasn't tempted by sin. But was he tempted when he came here? Suffered temptation in all points, just as we are, right? He was never tempted in heaven. There was no tempt, there was no spoilage in heaven. There was nothing in heaven to tempt him. There was nothing in, in heaven to lure, to lure or entice him in any way. But he came to earth and he suffered temptation. Not only that, but he had all of the people around him who touched him for the first times handled by sinful hands. Consider that. For the first time touched by sinful hands when He came here. Never in heaven had He ever been touched by anything impure. If you can imagine a king of a vast country, a vast domain, shedding aside all of his garments and taking upon himself the clothes of a servant and then jumping into a cesspool of open, raw sewage. That is, that's not even a glimpse of what it means for he who is holy to come down to this broken, sinful, rebellious, fallen, wicked despicable world. And so all of a sudden, He's right here in the midst of all of you sinners, all of us sinners, and He's surrounded by sinfulness and all of the effects of the fall. 
All of the wickedness. He has to wrestle with his little brothers because he's the oldest. So he wrestles with his little brothers. He's wrestling with haters of God, people who are at enmity with God, who are subjects of the wrath of God, who deserve all of that. And this sinful, or sinless, holy, pure Son of God has to sit down and eat every meal with his enemies, spiritually speaking. Isn't that unbelievable? Have you ever thought about what that was like for Christ to come here and to dive into this cesspool? What it cost him? It cost him all of his divine favor, all of his relationship to the law of God and to sin, untouched, untempted. It was the sinless, pure Son of God who nursed from a sinful breast. And His mother's kiss, as pure and as lovely and as holy as you might think it is, was still sinful, fallen, wicked, unclean lips. She certainly was not any more righteous than Isaiah. We had to have his, he said, I'm, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And then a set of those unclean lips had to kiss the Son of God. That's emptying, is it not? Taking the form of a man. He emptied himself of his riches. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus, Paul says. Though he was rich, he became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. He had heaven, he had everything in heaven. Everything at his disposal. No need, no lack, nothing that he could want, nothing that he could desire that he he didn't have at his disposal. He owned it all, not by permission, but by right, because he was God, and he existed in the form of God, and he had all of that. And then when he came here, he was birthed in a borrowed bed in a stable to a poor family. He had to borrow money to live. He had no place to lay his head. He had to borrow a donkey, borrow a room to have the Last Supper with the disciples, even borrow a tomb. He had nothing. And his glory, and his glory, he could have at any time pulled back the veil of his flesh and allowed us to see the form of God and the splendor of God in all of its majesty. But he only did that in Matthew chapter 17 on the Mount of Transfiguration, where you just get this brief glimpse behind the humanity at the deity of the Son of God. And he veiled all of that glory in human flesh. Didn't lay aside his glory. Didn't forfeit his glory. He had all of it. It was his, and it was veiled in human flesh. Do you want an idea of what that, that glory looked like? Go home this afternoon and read Isaiah chapter 6. And you see God high and lofty and lifted up in the temple and the, and the train of His robe fills the temple. And when He speaks, the thresholds shake and the foundations shake and the seraphim are above Him, above His head, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah says that they had to hide their faces from His glory. With two wings, they covered their faces. John chapter 12, verse 41 says that when Isaiah saw that, he saw Jesus. That's Isaiah chapter 6. That's Him in His glory. Holy angels could not look on His glory. And He who was the object of the most solemn adoration and praise and worship came here and He was despised and rejected by men. That's what it cost Him. Right before the sermon, we sang that... Uh, hymn by Charles Wesley. And can it be? The second line of the hymn says this. I'm, I'm throwing this out for your theological evaluation. Second line says this. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. I ask you the question, did he empty himself of all but love? 
Once again, you're a little slow on answering that. Some of you, that's not a trick question. The answer is no. He didn't empty himself of all but love. Now, I understand the sentiment behind that. That in emptying himself, he demonstrated his love. I think that that's the sentiment. And I certainly don't think that Charles Wesley did not, uh, denied the deity of Christ when he wrote that. It's an unfortunate wording. I wish that some, I wish I could have been there to correct him on it. And, <laughs> and suggest a different wording. But I don't think he was denying the deity of Christ because the chorus to that hymn says, Amazing love, how can it be? that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. And he also wrote another hymn, one that I love. The second stanza says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold Him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Friends, those are the best words ever put to music. The second stanza of that hymn, best words ever put to music. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. John's gospel narrative, or John's uh, birth narrative for the Lord Jesus, real theological, real succinct, real simple. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He didn't cease to be the Word. He didn't cease to be God. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. My favorite chorus, meekness and majesty, manhood and deity, in perfect harmony the man who is God, Lord of eternity, dwells in humility, kneels or dwells in humanity, kneels in humility, and washes our feet. Oh, what a mystery. Meekness and majesty. Bow down and worship, for this is your God. Isn't that good news? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for the revelation in your word that you give us of what you have done for us in the person of your Son. Thank you that he emptied himself. He was not coerced into dying for us, but that he came to redeem a bride and redeem a people that he might call us his own. We thank you for the mystery and the marvelous grace that has made that true for us, that has brought us into your home, into your house, and to be considered amongst your people. Oh, what grace that is, undeserved, unmerited, free, and infinite. And we thank you that he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a slave, that he might accomplish the redemption that he intended to accomplish. Thank you for that sacrifice. Thank you for such a wonderful Savior that words cannot even begin to describe, nor can our words begin to thank you for all of that grace. We say this this morning with thankful hearts in the name of our great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.